0: Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management.
1: I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Welcome to the Mental Models podcast. Today we're going to cover Group Think Part 2. We were just discussing the band Queen and how they were great at engaging the audience, essentially having group participation with stomping and clapping. If you think of Another One Bites the Dust, everyone is energized and engaged.
0: That's right. We would love for you to be energized and engaged, for you guys to like our podcast and write some sort of a review. Yeah,
1: we'd be okay with that. It's interesting, in human life, we uh, tend to like this hero narrative where one person did all the Work and they had the big insight. You know, sort of think of Isaac Newton going off and figuring out calculus utterly by himself. And we tend to, for some reason, gravitate toward those sorts of stories. But the realities are, is that we do much better and bigger things in groups. Think of most every important human achievement. It's rarely someone off in a cave working by themselves. Rather, it's some team of people that together generate great insights. The key to that is you have to have a process in
0: place, or else it's Yeah, no doubt. It's an important element, I find, for being able to counter bias by using a group of people with diverse opinions to come up with various risks that you may not understand. But it brings its own dangers, too, doesn't it?
1: It does. And and this is one of those interesting cases where certain sets of biases come about because of the way we tend to engage with other people and the disproportionate amount of psychological weight that we give toward others' opinions. One of the uh, classic experiments with Solomon Ash's work from about 50 or 60 years ago. And Ash was, like many social psychologists of the day, he was interested in persuasion and that phenomenon where group compliance would take place. There was obvious relevance to warfare situations of the day. He had a very simple experiment where we'd have a group, about four or five individuals, come into a room and they would all have to do a really simple task, like agree on which line was the longest out of three lines drawn on paper. And the way this would go is uh, there was only one real subject in the group. The rest were in on it and uh, they would all go along saying, okay, that's the longest line. Yep, we agree, great many trials of that. And then suddenly the group would turn. And so suddenly they would be saying that the medium-sized line was the longest. And the question is, would that actual subject stay out on a limb and just say, well, no, I I don't see what you guys are seeing? Or would they cave? And it turned out they were much less accurate. They would tend to cave to group pressure. And there's a lot to this. So it's not just that they're waving the white flag and going along with the group. You probably start to question, maybe there's something wrong with the way I'm seeing this. Because it's very, very hard to ignore this diverse, opinion that's coming in from all sides.
0: In a business setting, there's also a lot of incentive for an individual to agree with the group. If you go out on a limb and you disagree with the group, and ultimately it turns out that you're wrong, or even if you're right, you don't have the protection of basically diluting responsibility by agreeing with everyone else.
1: It kind of encourages people to take the safe call, right? So they're less likely to give contract to a kind of a new up-and-comer who looks really promising because they just give it to a corporate giant. It's much easier to defend the decision in retrospect if it works out or doesn't work out. So that's kind of one of those strange features of uh, managing people, how we take advantage of unique insights from individuals while not just letting it become a free-for-all with anyone with an idea is heard. There's definitely a balance of how you go about this. Uh, One of the notable other psychologists in this area is Irving Janus, who coined this term groupthink. He wrote a book on it. What groupthink was about is how you manage groups, specifically smaller operating groups. So an investment this would be kind of a small investment club, possibly, or if you're part of a fund, your group internally. And what Irving was really talking about was some of the, the biases that can come up. One of them is an illusion of invulnerability. And what that really is overconfidence bias that comes out of the group because again, you're starting to share ideas, your narratives start to converge, and everyone in the group's mental model will start to look the same after a while. And that feels right. You know, it's it's hard to
0: ignore the sense of group cohesion that happens. There's no doubt. It's very dangerous. We often say within Sabre Point that the most dangerous ideas are the ones that we all agree on. That's one to watch out for.
1: And there are some things in, that you can try to put in place to guard against that. But before we talk about remedies to group biases or best practice for group thinking, another thing that can evolve within a group, according to Irving Janis, was self-censorship or rationalizations. What'll happen there is if you and I have agreed on a particular narrative for a while, and we sort of share a mental model. I have some insight that, hey, we could be wrong in a certain way. I might not want to voice, this. especially if we were in a larger group, I might think, well, I don't want to be seen as a dissenter. I don't want to be viewed as a squeaky wheel who's sort of a problem. And so just trying to make the group function smoothly, I might actually withhold or censor important insights that come up.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of interesting dynamics that I've witnessed in this circumstance. Often there's a group leader. If the group leader goes and expresses an opinion, if you think of your boss and you're in a meeting with a group of other colleagues and the boss expresses an opinion, people are going to be less likely to disagree with that person and go in a different direction because they don't want to harm their own position and their boss's perception of their position. So there's a lot of tricky dynamics to overcome when you're making decisions within a group setting.
1: And I think within groups, we always compromise to some degree because we, you kind of get that feeling when you're in a group discussion, like, I have my own viewpoint of how this would work, but I can see that the group's sort of going in separate directions, so I've got to kind of get on board, at least to some degree. So there's a compromise position that we have to take. I'm not suggesting that we just be a thorn in everyone's side and always be contrary, but there's you have to make that calculation of what's going to help the group, and how can I frame this for the group so that they understand where I'm coming. So
0: it's really interesting, because one of the ways you can control the likelihood that the the group is just going to move towards consensus based off of everyone else's thoughts. Is that you can express that you want to have a culture of people thinking independently, but that can also backfire, just like you're talking about, where somebody becomes a thorn in the side of the group. You get a group of intelligent people together in a room, and they're trying to prove their value by showing a very distinctive viewpoint that is differentiated from one of everyone else's, and then the whole thing can turn into just noise.
1: It's hard to get. The- done as a group for that reason, right? It's cumbersome sometimes. It's this term, you can't do this by committee, right? Which has become kind of code for yeah, we have to just push through and not get as much, not try to build as much consensus here because people will weigh this down with extra ideas. There's also a timing element that goes on here. So if you have a a new group, they're going to spend some time figuring out the pecking order the hierarchy, who's good at what. I think that's a case where everyone needs to really have freedom to express opinions. This changes over time time, though. So a group will usually hit some kind of optimal level where they know one another's competencies, they more or less understand one another, yet they still have a lot of their own insights that they're willing to express. I think where, where Irving Janice cautions us in groupthink is when a group has stayed together a long time, they can start to become polarized in very hardened ways. And it's simply that people may have just spent too much time together and their mental models all overlap. It's an echo chamber, right? You, you st- you're constantly hearing this, same thing and you start to take it to be reality, but that's actually a a false belief. So sometimes groups outlive their usefulness and that's why you need new blood and you need to kind of recirculate or take on an unusual position or topic so that you refresh the group's uh, dynamics.
0: Another interesting way to think about this and to overcome some of the stagnancy that can develop within a group is to change the incentives that are provided for the group. For instance, if you basically encourage everyone to make decisions or to come up with various assessments of circumstances then they're compensated based off of the accuracy of their own assessment. That in itself can help you veer away from either everyone agreeing with everyone else or disagreeing to be able to show that they're bringing a different perspective to the dynamic.
1: We're so interestingly hierarchical if you think of we're fundamentally primates and baboon troops and chimpanzee groups have this pecking order and there's a of rules or norms that come along with that as to who eats first and, and so on, it, we kind of mirror that as people as well. So the composition of a group has to be thought about pretty actively, especially by the management. There's another phenomenon group thing called mind guarding, where sometimes someone kind of deputizes themselves to be the uh, suppressor, you know, dissenting opinion. They sort of, uh, you know, overwhelm someone dissents or has a different idea. They kind of get shouted down a little bit, and sometimes certain people will, will take on that persona. If you watch the show The Office, which we did, I'm thinking of the Dwight character. He used to be the mind guard for Michael, who was the boss. And Dwight, every silly thing Michael did, Dwight was always there to reinforce it and, and get the group, rally them to support it. That's, of course, the a caricature of this destructive sort of thinking, but it is very real.
0: When we're talking about making investment decisions, it's really important that we tease out the risks associated with them. We have variant viewpoints. That's the whole reason we want to bring a group into the process because we all have our biases, our narratives that we've adopted with with analyzing a particular circumstance. And if you can get someone else's perspective that's somewhat differentiated from yours, then it can help you tease out where you may have blind spots. In any group construction, it is important to try to have diversity among the members. If everybody comes, one thing that happens in the investment business is they tend to hire from the same pool of people. They're looking for the people People that have the best grades from Ivy League schools that are pretty uniform, a lot of these people got to the position that they were in by taking instruction from a teacher, checking a box, and coloring within the line, so to speak. It's good to get people that come from a lot of different variant backgrounds because then they can come up with unique perspectives. And if they're in a position where you create an architecture that allows them to communicate where they don't feel like they have to be within consensus of everyone else, but at the same point in time, they're essentially trying to come to the truth or the right answer that may be an emphasis on right and wrong. I do try to dissuade people thinking about coming up with the right probabilistic determination of the various outcomes, then that can be extremely constructive in the decision-making process. The key is to create that architecture that allows them to do that.
1: This reminds me of Steve Jobs was rather famous for stating that you can just live life not bumping up against the walls and going with the flow, but he felt like the real way to achieve something was to deliberately bump up against life's walls and and make change. Of course, the downside of that is jobs is notoriously impossible to work with. There's a mixture of bringing new insights while also having some level of group coherence. So building a diverse team is a nice way to do this because people are naturally having their own distinct thoughts that they bring to the group, and we value that. We generally do have a value on not a dissenter so much but someone who has genuine insights if they're free to voice them everyone wins.
0: There's a couple of policies or procedures that can be put into place to help avoid a circumstance where people are distorting their opinions based off of either the opinion of the leader of the group or the consensus or the perceived consensus. One is that you can discuss a particular topic but when you ask people for their opinion about evaluating the circumstances you can have them do that privately. For instance they could write it down and then And submit it anonymously to the leader. And then the leader doesn't come out and voice his opinion throughout the discussion. He holds that back until it comes to the point in time where he actually decides or comes to a point where he actually wants to execute a decision because the leader is aware of the disproportionate influence that they may have upon the opinions of the other members of the group.
1: There's almost a strange backlash that occurs with anonymity. So if you think about postings online, people are much less cordial and much harsher, almost than they ever would be in person. When you take away that personal link, it can have a big advantage. And Not that it makes people coarser in their behavior, but it it frees people up in a sense to say more what they're really thinking, and it guards against that challenge where people are deferring to someone else and they don't want to seem like a dissenter. There are very clear individual biases that grow out of this as well. One of them is consistency bias, which is our tendency to want to appear to hold the same opinion and be stable. We generally value that in others, that they seem very stable, we can rely on them. The challenge becomes when someone is starting to feel like they're wrong, they may not voice it simply
0: because they don't want to flip-flop. It's extremely important to be able to flip-flop. There's a story about John Maynard Keynes when he changed his position on a particular issue and was criticized for that action by another individual who made the observation that he had changed his position. And he said, when When the facts change, sir, I change my mind. What do you do? It's important when you are doing investment analysis or or conducting that craft that you understand the world is an uncertain place, that there are many risks associated with any assessment, there are multiple outcomes that can occur. At SabrePoint, for instance, we try to avoid uses of definite descriptions of outcomes. I want typically people to talk in terms of probabilities, the likelihood of various scenarios that could develop as opposed to saying, well, this is the case or this will happen. If you talk in terms of certainty, then it's very difficult later on just psychologically to come back and say, well, I was wrong and that was incorrect. It's much easier to say that I think there's a 70% probability that we will achieve this outcome. And then there's a 30% probability that we'll achieve this other less desirable outcome. When you come to the point where it becomes more apparent with the development of the facts that the undesirable outcome is the more likely scenario, then you can shift your assessment as to how the game will
1: end That's an important tool in a complex world to try to put numbers to things because it is going to happen in one particular way, but we just don't know it in advance ever, right? So that was part of the advice in Super Forecasters, which was a book, and it was also a Department of Defense-related project on intelligence analytics, how to better improve Intelligence analytics is very similar to investing in that you have lots of information that tends to point toward possibly contradictory or different outcomes. Part of super forecasting was to try to always think about the probabilities with the acknowledgement that there's some non-zero possibility that even a very likely future outcome won't happen simply because some other unseen, unanticipated element can always exist.
0: It's not necessarily the case that these assessments have to be Precise by any means. But what is important is that they leave open the door that you recognize that you can have a negative out. Now, it's difficult for people to think in those terms. There's another possibility that can be blended with that concept, and that is to establish different people within the group that have a different advocacy position. One person is pro, the other is con. And then the ultimate decision maker is not one that is actually engaged in the advocacy for a particular decision. They hear both sides of the argument from people that are zealous advocates, something like similar to what we have in our court system, where you have an adversarial process where the judge and jury are very different than those that are presenting the arguments, and then they make their assessment based off of all of the dynamics that have been teased out by these two conflicting opinions.
1: You're definitely sounding like a lawyer now, George. I was also thinking about juries when you were describing that, and you can borrow from the jury model an effect jury has presumably tried at least to remain open to discussion, right? And that's, of course, very difficult to do because we are sense-making creatures. We gravitate toward a theory. Whenever we get information, we try to make cause and effect connections where we can. But when a jury deliberates, they should really carefully review the evidence. And in my own experience as a former jury member, yes, someone does jury duty out there, uh, occasionally at least, I was pleasantly surprised to see how Dissenting opinion could be voiced. And with the procedures in place, you review the, the actual facts on the ground, at least the evidence you have. Most of the time, people will um, come around toward a, a sensible decision and a stronger decision because they've considered the alternatives.
0: Yes. Yeah, so the, the important thing is to tease out the various alternatives of uh, situations because one of the big differences associated with a uh, adversarial uh, legal proceeding is everything's already occurred and we're trying to sort out what actually happened. Whereas in investing, we're trying to think prospectively. We're trying to think about what will happen. And it's very, very important not to assume that there is a certain outcome. So it's good to think of all of the alternatives and define the probabilities. They don't have to be exact, but you need to recognize that there is no certainty.
1: So when you find that you're maybe there's too much agreement about a position, do you do any particular things to get outside opinion or seek additional advice
0: from others? There's often a good process or practice to go out and share the facts with someone else. Not sharing your conclusion but sharing the facts as you see them and then asking them to do their own assessment and maybe they'll come back and look at it. Now the problem with that is usually when you're sharing the facts uh, you tend to share the ones that are very relevant premises for your own bias and then they'll go out and perhaps they don't do as much work and then they come back and just reiterate what it is that you had given them and then you you are reinforced in your initial assessment one thing that we do like to do is to take ideas and we share them on social media where there are active investors that will do their own work and come back with criticisms or alternative thoughts and they say have you considered they're not suffering from any of the biases that have then been adopted by your group which can be quite helpful but you have to feed through a fair amount of noise because some commenters they don't have a rich enough amount of of perspective to be able to have valuable insight. So it has variable success, but there are circumstances where somebody brings up a point that you did not have and it gives you a little bit more thought with respect to something that you thought where you'd clearly defined all the parameters.
1: And putting out an opinion in public is another unusual distortion of sorts because, you know, writing for other people has its own sorts of biases and dangers associated with. It. First of all, uh, when you write about something, you have to kind of fill in the gaps and dots. You can learn a lot in that process, but the danger is once you've put that narrative out into the world, you feel like you fall into that sort of consistency bias of, I've written on this, I don't want to look like I changed my mind because it'll undermine people's confidence, which is, of course, kind of troublesome. And so when you read others' research, that's important to keep in mind is that they're presenting, you know, one version of of the possibilities, but it's often not tempered enough with the counter cases.
0: That's true. And that's why it's always important to discount to some degree someone's idea that you're reading where they don't share any risks. They just tell you basically why this is a wonderful investment idea. And there's no acknowledgement of circumstances that could arise where it might go awry or where it may end an unfavorable outcome from the position that's being purported. If you do this yourself, you have a danger associated with consistency bias. One example that comes to mind that is very commonly quoted is Bill Ackman's crusade against Herbalife, where he had a 90-minute presentation that he provided publicly, and he had a multi-billion dollar bet against the company, which ultimately ended quite horribly for him, based off of it being a pyramid scheme. And the danger with that is, is when you come out and you say something with a great degree of certainty, you destroy your credibility in the public eye if you reverse yourself. If you set up an escape hatch, so to speak, where there's an acknowledgement that there is is a situation where you have a negative outcome on this investment idea, and there is a certain probability that you assign to it, then you're not being inconsistent. So you don't trigger the bias as much. And you say, well, I thought that there was a 30% chance of this negative outcome. And when I look back on my original assessment, it certainly seems that we fell into that area. And that risk became the ultimate development of the circumstances as we saw them.
1: That seems like an awfully good practice that you can even put into practice. practice within a group discussion is just put out the probability with some additional information. If it sounds too good to be true, it almost certainly is. There's no exact remedy to the groupthink biases. And so like many things in behavioral and cognitive bias, you have to walk down a line that you're calibrating against certain distortions on one hand and other distortions on the other. And so you have to find that balance for yourself. We can acknowledge that there are these advantages that come about with sharing your opinion. Accountability research is one of the things that happens in my field. When you have people do a reasoning or decision-making task with some complex information, often if you tell them the experimenter is going to read this, it just ups their level of seriousness in the analysis a little bit. They don't go on autopilot. So there's some advantage just psychologically to sharing the opinion. Of course, if you do that too often and too much, then it can build in that sort of echo chamber effect or consistency bias. You have to kind of exert the self, discipline to date your opinion, but do so moderately
0: and always remain open to the possibility of being wrong. It's funny that you mentioned that at my previous fund that I was at, we would often write letters and we'd write about our ideas. And and if we had a position that was quite large, but we didn't feel comfortable writing about it, then we came to the conclusion that we needed to reduce the size of the position.
1: That's an interesting example of uh, the act of sharing information actually affecting how you think about it. In this episode, we've talked about group dynamics and specifically group think-related biases. Uh, Just to sum up, we talked about the illusion of invulnerability or illusions of control that can come about when a group falsely builds too much consensus, and that having some procedures in place to avoid things like self-censorship and rationalization can be smart, such as having anonymity or situations where you de-identify the contributor of the information. That's smart. Groups can start to become, they become in-groups after a while, and so injecting some diversity and new opinion into groups can be very helpful. And really keeping in mind that we we do well as a group, we improve our performance as a group, but it does have some pitfalls that need to be avoided, usually with processes in place to help us maximize our group benefit and avoid the costs.
0: I think that pretty much wraps it up this uh, particular session.
1: All right, so we'll get out in the world and we'll talk to some other people and get some new group dynamics going and we recommend you do the same. Yep, so we're out. That's all. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit MentalModelsPodcast.com for updates on Dan and George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on MentalModelsPodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitcher. Please subscribe and thank you for listening.